I pray that you do. I invite you to turn to the, the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10, or sorry, Mark chapter 11. Uh, Mark chapter 11. We're going to pick up off where we left off last week, which if you weren't here, uh, it was the triumphal entry of our king to Jerusalem. And as I said last week, if you were to span the Gospel of Mark across the timeline and the chapters, what you would see, uh, the proportion that Mark gives to the final week of Jesus' life is disproportional to the rest of uh, his ministry. The three years spans about, his ministry spans about, uh, three years spans about ten chapters, uh, and the last six chapters and fully devoted to the last week of Christ's life and immediately following the resurrection. And my point in saying that is that Mark has a central point to why he's writing his whole gospel, and he actually stated it in chapter 1, verse 1, that this is Christ, the Messiah. This is who he is. And he proves that out in the last six chapters here for us. So our text this morning is Mark 11, uh, verses 12 to 25. Uh, but before we read that, uh, I just want to pick up where we left off last week. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. It's the first day Jesus, he's entered into uh, Jerusalem uh, with the praise of all the people yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. Uh, glory to God in the highest. And then at the end of that procession, he then, verse 11, picks up, he entered Jerusalem, and there he went into the temple. When he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I read this verse. Our text is 12 to 25, but I read this verse because this verse is important to understand what Jesus is actually about to do. Our title for the sermon this morning is Out with the Old and In with the New. So let's... Let's read our text in full here again this morning. You follow along uh, chapter, 12, or chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could, he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came and they went out of the city, as they passed by in, in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, ask, Lord, as we open the scriptures this morning, as we uh, uh, look at your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us through the apostles and through church history, Father, we pray 
uh, Lord, that you would bring alive for us this morning, change in our hearts to see what you're actually doing here. Lord, if you don't reveal this to us, if you don't open blinded eyes, Father Lord, then we will remain in darkness. So we ask, knowing that you can and that you will, help us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is an interesting passage. Uh, if you've read Mark from front to back, what you'll understand is that there are some easy passages. It's very easy to understand what, what, what's going on here, all the moving parts. But then, on the other hand, there's, there comes these, these hard passages where it's like, I don't know what the heck's going on here. What, what in the world is coming on here? So, so I want to I remind you of something that Mark does throughout his gospel. It's been a while since we've encountered something like this. Uh, but this is the, uh, uh, the technical term. is called a sandwich. I don't know if that's the technical term. It's what I'm calling it. The Mark sandwiches, right? Where in what he does is he, he, he weaves together two separate distinct events into one unit, right? And so you know this because like a sandwich, you've got uh, bread and then you've got meat. So you've got on the top part, you've got a piece of bread. And on the bottom part, you have a piece of bread. But in the middle, you have the meat of the sandwich. That's what's going on here. Right? You know this because at the beginning he starts talking about this, uh, Jesus cursing this fig tree. Uh, and then he kind of goes into the temple. He kind of riles everybody up, creates chaos, kicks everybody out. And then at the end of this passage you have the fig tree again. So what I want to do this morning is I, I want to first preach this text uh, by looking at what's happening in the temple. And then move to the outer edges of this text, uh, which there we find the lessons from the fig tree. I want to do this primarily because if we look at verses 11 through 14, or 19 through 25, by themselves, we will misunderstand what Jesus is doing with the fig tree. In fact, this is a passage that a lot of people read, and then they begin to wonder if Jesus has actually lost his mind. Is Jesus who he says he is? For example, Joseph Klossner wrote about this passage, It is a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong. T.W. Manson said, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper for the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree. might have been more useful expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And as it stands, it's simply incredible. William Barclay says that the story does not seem worthy of Jesus Atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell from Scotland, who is now no longer with us, accused Jesus, here's what he says, of vindictive fury. And wrote of our Lord's character, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. So uh, uh, secular, non-believing people look at this story of Jesus and him cursing a fig tree and like, the dude was hangry. He acted out of foolishness, but is that really what's going on here? Perhaps even this morning as we read the scripture, you wondered, what in the world is going on here? Because the text says for us that even, uh, it wasn't even the season for figs in verse 13. And yet Jesus not only expected to see figs, he cursed it because there was none. So what in the world is going on here? And that's why it's important to understand the literary, uh, what Mark is doing by weaving these stories together. It's meant to be read as one cohesive unit, not in isolation. So let's start with what appears to be the easier of the two things to see if it will help shed light on the more puzzling aspects. Look at verse 15. 
They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So it's helpful to understand what the temple is supposed to be. This is where an understanding of the Old Testament, uh, in order to understand the New Testament, we need to understand the Old Testament. Uh, and here's what the temple, as it's properly functioned, rightly ordered, the temple was to be a place of worship for all the nations. It was supposed to be a place where anyone could come uh, who had a heart for Christ and a heart for God could come and worship, to come and pray. And so we see a couple things here with the temple. Number one, we see a problem with the temple, and then we see a solution for the temple, and then we see some application from our own lives from this temple, right? So, so, so what is the problem with the temple? Because it appears that Jesus has lost his mind here. He, he, he actually, it's like he sees red, gone off the deep end. He uh, he flips over the money changers' tables. The other gospels would it tell us that he actually like produced like I don't know maybe some rope laying around. He produced like a whip and began to herd out the animals from the temple. So so what is Jesus' mind seems to be the problem? Perhaps the problem seems obvious to some of us. Perhaps some of us see even days in our own churches today where, where uh, people begin to sell stuff in the church, right? Like, so maybe that would be what you say, the problem, oh, they're just selling stuff in the church. The church is never meant to be uh, a place to sell stuff. Uh, perhaps you think that, oh, well, it's a, it's a mixing of the unholy with the holy. Perhaps I've even uh, said in my own days that, 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 yeah, this is why Jesus was angry. As a matter of fact, by the way, Christians and non-Christians alike love this passage. This passage of Jesus seeming to, to see righteous indignation and anger and riling people up, right? So unbelievers love it because they come into the church and they're like, let's, let's flip over some tables, right? And then Christians love it because they're like, okay, let's come in here and flip over some tables, right? Just something about human nature. We just like to flip stuff over. It seems simple. Like, this is the problem. We've mixed unholy with holy things, and we need to stop that, pastor. Get it out of here. It doesn't belong in the church. It seems simple, doesn't it? But I want to give us a few things to think this morning. Perhaps the problem is not as simple as we think. For example, have you ever thought about how big this temple was? Perhaps you think that the temple was about as big as our lobby out there, or perhaps even as big as the sanctuary in here. But it wasn't. Built by Harold the Great, here's how large the temple was. The outer court was 500 yards by 375 yards. Think five football field lengths long by almost four football field lengths wide. Some 34 acres was the temple. It was gigantic. That's the point. It was gigantic. And inside uh, this temple, that was the outer court. Inside, they had another section for women uh, who could come in. So the outer temple was meant for the nations, the world. Anyone could come into the outer temple. Then inside of that outer temple, there was another inner temple, which uh, women were allowed. And then inside were the Israelites. And then inside, even the smallest place was the Holy of Holies. And that place was only for the high priest. It's gigantic. 
And inside this gigantic temple, inside it, they were selling animals. Now, now understand, we, we covered this last week in some of the church history stuff, like uh, at this time, the dispersion of the Jews had already taken place. So Jews were no longer isolated primarily inside Jerusalem or even inside Israel, but they were dispersed throughout the known world. Right, well, this, is, this actually served as a, uh, as a great uh, jumping off point for the Christian religion because what did Paul do when he entered into all the different cities? What did he do when he entered Athens? What did he do when he entered Antioch? Where did he go first? It was the Jewish synagogues because the Jews were dispersed. They were no longer uh, primarily located just in Jerusalem or Israel. They were everywhere. And so with that being, with this dispersion of the Jews, when people would make their way for Passover, when they would come to the temple, uh, it, was, it was not very practical for them to carry a lamb. That many hundreds of miles people traveled from all over. So this, the selling of sacrifices served a very practical purpose. Very practical purpose. They would sell doves, they would sell lambs, they uh, they would do all of this so that the people of God who would come and want to worship God wouldn't have to carry uh, this burden for that long of a distance. And there's nothing wrong with that. But on top of that, there were these money changers, right? Because uh, the, the people from Rome who were coming to sacrifice uh, at the Passover week could not just come and bring their Roman currency. They couldn't come and bring their Greek currency. What they had to do is they had to convert it to... Th- uh, Tyrant currency, tyrant currency, right? So they had, to, they had to exchange their money with other money, which then they could take that money and then buy their sacrifice and then make the sacrifice. This was uh, Exodus 30, uh, would tell the Israelites that had to, they had to sacrifice kosher animals. But not only that, but that if they were to purchase a sacrifice, they had to purchase it using kosher currency. And so that's what's going on here. These these, um, these men, these money changers, these, these sellers of sacrifices, uh, this is the business model that's going on here. Very practical purpose, right? This sounds fun, right? Who's ever played Monopoly? Like, you're, you're going to this table, buying this stuff, going to this table, buying this stuff. But this sort of thing allowed for a great perversion of what God intended to be the temple. As a matter of fact, this became a way to exploit people. You see, I remember a couple years ago, uh, seventh or eighth grade, uh, down in southern Ohio, we were played what we called, uh, colloquially became known as the ice storm. Uh, seventh or eighth grade, I remember this, and I lived in a back holiday, as you all know, uh, which the road never saw much sunlight, and so what happened is almost overnight, everything uh, got about an inch of ice on top of it, and so we, we were literally iced into our house for uh, a week, uh, and then a, after that, like all the schools shut down in the area, everything shut down, and then a week later, everything opened up. But, but guess what? We were still stuck at home because the bus wasn't making its way down that icy holler. Um, but I remember vividly, uh, we were out of electricity for about a week, uh, a week, week and a half or so. Uh, and what became the primary source for heat and for cooking food was this kerosene heater. This kerosene heater. Now, we had used it on and off a couple times over the year, but this became... Uh, life and death kind of situation. We had to have it. And I remember back in those days where, uh, where, where we, would, we would like make our way out of the holler to just go buy kerosene. 
And I remember, like, what would happen in those times? What happens in these times when, when things go up in demand? Like, the price begins to skyrocket. So you used to be able to, like, maybe buy a bottle of water for a dollar. Now it's costing you six or seven dollars. Right, this kind of price gouging, right? They had no other means to which to get the kerosene, and so uh, the sellers of the kerosene realized that, and so they, they seen it as an opportunistic way to grow the revenue. And that's what's going on here in the temple. It wasn't the fact that sacrifices were being bought. It wasn't the fact that money was being converted to allow for the proper currency to be used to buy sacrifices. The problem was that this had become an economic enterprise of perversion. You see, this was one of the main money funnels for the Sanhedrin. The money went straight to them. This is the problem Jesus sees. This is the problem that Jesus has with the temple. You see, the temple was supposed to be a light to the world. The temple was supposed to be a place of witness to the nations. Anyone who worshiped Christ would come and worship uh, from the sincerity of their heart, and yet they were being exploited for that. You see, the commercialization of the outer court proved the Jews had no real heart desire for enabling the Gentiles to worship in any meaningful way. The problem was not that they were selling sacrifices or converting money. The problem was they didn't really care if the Gentiles worshipped God. There was a problem with prayer. There was a problem with holiness. They had a problem with God's will and intentions. They had a problem with worship. And Jesus sees the temple and he says it's no longer acting properly. So that's the problem. And so Jesus has a solution. He brings a solution. And, and what I love about Jesus' solution is something that I really enjoyed in my 20s. He brings this zeal, this passion, this, this conviction. He has a zeal, right? Notice that his solution for the temple problem is to simply overcome it with zeal and passion and conviction. As a 20-year-old man, this passage spoke to me. But notice, it wasn't a zeal against the way things had always been. Rather, it was a zeal for God's will and a, will and a zeal for God's holiness. Here we have a picture of Jesus seeing red rightly so. Right, oftentimes we think of Christ, we think of a lamb, meek, mild, never raising his voice, soft-spoken, manicured nails. Friends, this is not the Christ of scriptures. Here, Jesus has a strong personality. A strong personality. He's flipping over tables. He's driving. Like, imagine, uh, like, the 34 acres. And Jesus, I don't know how he does it. He's just driving animals out. And folks. Just driving them out. The thing that calls Jesus... To see red for the holiness of God was to see God's holiness not taken seriously. I wonder, have you, have you thought about what is it that makes you see red? What is it that causes you angst? What causes within you a fire to begin to build up inside of you? 
going back to the differences between what we think holiness is, oftentimes we think holiness is meek and mild and soft-spoken. As a matter of fact, Kevin DeYoung wrote an article in it. He said uh, uh, they had this, this, this camp, this group of people, uh, and there, like, there was this group of kids who, uh, who were labeled as the holy kids, like they're the ones that are serious about holiness. And uh, the character traits which described these folks was uh, they're, they're, they're quiet, they're introspective, soft-spoken. And then the other group, so those are the holy, holy kids, and then over here you have another group of kids, and uh, the, 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 uh, the label which classified these children were, were things like uh, comedy and, and humor, right? So you can't be humorous and holy, right? Never did the two uh, meet. And he says that oftentimes the Christian world thinks of holiness in those sorts of categories. Like, okay, if you're angry, then obviously you're not a holy person. But church fam, understand that holiness is not a personality type. It's not a personality type. Friends, let's not forget that Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, was also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. What we see in Jesus here is righteous indignation. What we see in Jesus is a zeal for God's holiness, a zeal for prayer, zeal for the worship, the right worship of God. So what are you enthusiastic about? What are you passionate about? What drives your zeal? Let me give you a couple practical ways for you to kind of suss this out in your own life. One of the, one of the most common ways for, for adults to understand uh, what is it that we care about, what are we passionate about, what are we enthusiastic about, is simply look at your bank statement for the last six months. Because your money will follow your passion. Your money will follow your passion. Simply look at where your money has went, and there you will find the things which you are most passionate about. Number two, what are the thoughts that come to your mind as you're laying down to go to sleep at night? What pops into your mind? What what keeps you awake? What do you think about the most? And this one I thought was helpful. It's a, a if, if you're a parent. Simply ask your child today, what is it that mommy and daddy talk the most about? See what the response is. They'll let you know what your passions are. They'll let you know what you're zealous for. They'll let you know what is your soft spot. Like, what is the thing that drives you up the wall? Right, we see Jesus doing this, right? Remember earlier in Mark with the rich young ruler, right? As a, as a surgeon, Jesus, the man comes to Jesus, and as a surgeon, Jesus uh, very quickly hits him in a soft spot, right? Jesus gets to his soft spot, right? He gets to his money. It wasn't about the love of the Lord. It wasn't about following God's commands. It was about his money. He very quickly hits him in his soft spot, and the man walks away. Jesus' soft spot here is for holiness. It's for God's will. It's for God's intentions, so what are you enthusiastic, passionate about? What drives your zeal? Now, here's, don't hear me say you can't enjoy things. You see, it's fine to work hard. It's fine to uh, enjoy time with friends and family. It's, an, it's, a, it's, it's actually a marvelous thing to enjoy good food and good drink. Perhaps even it's a fine thing to enjoy sports. I don't know yet. But if it's not a drive for God's holiness and honor that drives our zeal, it's a zeal misplaced. So Jesus' solution for the temple problem is to uh, replace the temple issue with zeal. That's his solution. 
And you say, so what's, what's the point of this, Pastor? Well, what's happening here is, is Jesus is, uh, is effectively saying, out with the old and in with the new. Notice there's a transition here. It's not incoincidental that this is taking place inside the temple. More specifically, it's not incidental that this is taking uh, a place in the part of the temple where all the nations were welcomed. You see, the transition here is Jesus is beginning to say to people, there is a new way. There's a new way. There's a new way to have access with God. There's a new way to have forgiveness with the Lord. Now, God isn't changing His mind in the way that we worship and pray here. But notice that the temple was always supposed to be temporary, never permanent. The temple was the place where people could come and have access to God in the temple from its inception was always meant to point people to the true and final temple in Jesus Christ. Because it's in Christ that we have our full access and complete access to God. John would say in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We know this is what Mark is saying here because Mark says in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when Christ died, this uh, miraculous thing happened that inside the Holy of Holies, there was this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else. And only the high priest could enter this Holy of Holies. And so when Christ dies, that temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies curtain is torn from top to bottom. We no longer need to go to a physical building to meet with God. Out with the old and in with the new. There are no more rituals required for you and I to have right standing with God. Out with the old and in with the new. No longer do we need another sacrifice. Out with the old and in with the new. You see, Christianity is not ultimately about you and I trying to be nice, moral people. Christianity is not primarily about following a set of rules. Christianity is about believing the gospel. It's not about rule following. You see, Christianity was amazing in its day, and it's amazing even today, that it was the first religion to say we no longer need a temple system. We no longer need a temple. We no longer need a priest. We no longer need sacrifices. We no longer need rituals in order to gain access to God. Every other religion in the world says you need this. But not Christianity. It's the first religion to say we have been given full and complete access to God. And so now we have this organic relationship with Christ who is the temple himself. There's an example I have a newspaper a couple, uh, a couple years ago uh, that I ran across. And it was a, this mom uh, went out into her backyard and she climbed into her children's uh, tree house. And there she, uh, with large letters, wrote a sign that says, Mom on Strike. And so the dad comes out of the house and he says, uh, Honey, if you just come down, listen, I promise I'll be a better husband. I promise I'll do more dishes. I promise I'll fold the laundry. If you would just come down, I'll do all these things. And the kids, seeing their mom up there, they come out of the house and they say, Mom, Mom, we need you. If you would just come down, we will be more obedient children. We will listen to you more than we listen to Dad. Just come down, Mom. We, we need you. Like, oftentimes, we think of our relationship with God like this, don't we? 
Listen, God has already come down. He's already given us access. So what Jesus is saying here, this is why I think it's so important that he went the night before to look at it, right? And then he, he leaves because it's late, and now he's come back to, to finally uh, put the temple system to death. You see, no longer are the people of God primarily a temple-centric people. Like our lives do not revolve around a temple. Our lives uh, do not even revolve around this church house. Rather, our lives revolve around a single person. We are person-centric. This is another way to say we are Christ-centered in all aspects of our lives. Your hope for life should be found in Christ. Your hope for the church should be found in Christ. This is important to understand, right? Because as a church, uh, as, as individuals, right, we should never feel like we have to keep up with the Joneses. Why? Because we're free in Christ. We don't have to keep up with other folks. In the same way as a church, we should understand that as a church, we don't have to keep up with the Joneses. Now, we should feel a pressure as a church, as a gathered body of God's people, that we should feel a pressure to be holy. We should feel a pressure to be the faithful people of God. I'm not sure if you've noticed about something particular about our church. We don't place a whole lot of emphasis on our different... Pro- like, so we're not out there in the community and be like, yeah, you should come to our church. Yeah, we got a great children's program. Like, we're not out there in the community saying, yeah, you should come. We got great small groups. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with those programs necessarily. But what we need to understand is, even if we don't have all the great new inventions of ministry inside of our church, uh, that's not the problem. We should be a people primarily concerned about Christ. So if all we did together on Sunday mornings was to gather to sing praises to our God, to read the scriptures, to hear the word preached, and to pray, then listen, that would be enough. It doesn't matter if bigger and larger churches have bigger and larger programs. We're not called to keep up with these latest innovations and ministries, but rather we are called to be a holy people. We are called to be faithful. This is what Jesus says here. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Look at verse 15. Jesus is showing he has authority here. Right? Jesus is showing. He's, he's driving these. Like, think about it. How long had these folks been set up? Right? Like, this wasn't like a, just a pop-up market. Right? These people were fixtures inside the temple. And Jesus comes in and he just, he just runs them out. He just runs them out. It's like going down to Walmart and said, all oh, y'all out of here. Jesus is showing that he has authority here. He can come into the temple and he can remove it all. He can come into your life and my life and rearrange the furniture. And listen, he does. Jesus has full reign over your life and heart if you are in him. Now listen, the main point of the temple, this section within the Mark sandwich here, is this idea that we are done with the old and in comes the new. So now, knowing that, let's look back at the fig tree and understand what the heck is going on here. Everything I've just said, the main point is out with the old and in with the new. So let's look at verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. 
For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, two things. Number one, I know that uh, this passage relates to uh, the middle passage and then to the end passage because of the Mark sandwich, the way he does it. But there's a little phrase there that happens right at the end of this section uh, that uh, repeats itself in the previous section. Right. So look at the end of verse 14. Jesus curses the fig tree. Then what happens? His disciples heard it. It's the same words used of the Pharisees and the scribes when Jesus is saying, you have turned this place into a den of robbers. The scribes and the Pharisees heard it. There's something going on here. And so what is going on here? Well, the text tells us in verse 12, Jesus is hungry. And so he goes to the tree, finds no food on it, and therefore he curses the tree. Now, this seems reasonable from a human's perspective, doesn't it? Is Jesus frustrated because he is hungry? Is he merely having a sense of hangryness? I don't think so, because verse 13 tells us this isn't even the season for the figs. This is not like Jesus shouldn't have expected figs. You see, the point becomes pretty clear. When you understand the growth of a fig tree and the processes in which it takes to actually develop mature You see, the first process in the fig tree development and in its bloom season is, number one, it would begin to develop these little nubs on it, these little nubs. Now, you could eat those for nourishment. They they weren't very good, though. It's like eating an unripe strawberry, right? You can eat it. You'll get nourishment from it. It's just not going to taste very good. But you'd be able to satisfy your hunger. Number two, the second stage of the flourishing of the tree is it would begin to develop leaves. It would, the leaves on it would begin to sway in the wind. It would flourish with leaves. And then the final step is it would develop mature figs. And so when Jesus goes to this fig tree, he is expecting to see at least a budding of fruit. These little, these little nubs. But then he curses the tree. Why? Because here's what Jesus is saying. It's the same thing he was saying about the temple. The fig tree is not functioning in the proper way in which it was designed. Notice verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. You see this fig tree masqueraded as if it had at least buddings, if not mature figs. It's waving its luscious and green leaves, inviting all those who are hungry to come and eat of its fruit. It's a bit deceptive. And so Jesus goes to the tree, finds no food on it anywhere, and he curses the tree to teach the disciples that it isn't operating according to the way it was designed. It had the appearance of fruit, but no fruit. He's teaching. He's, he's, this isn't working right. It's not properly ordered. It's not the way it was designed to work. But also, it's an illustration of judgment. You see, in the Old Testament, the fig was oftentimes used as a symbol of judgment of Israel. Specifically, in verse uh, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter eight, verse thirteen says this. It says, "When I would gather them, this is the Lord talking about gathering His chosen children, Israel." It says this: "When I would gather them, declares the Lord." There are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. You see, the context of Jeremiah 8.13 is within the judgment of God on Israel. 
And a judgment is coming to this passage. And so Jesus is using the cursing of a fig tree uh, as an object lesson of what's about to come to the temple. A judgment has come on the tree, and in like ways, a judgment is coming on the temple. In the same way the tree is not functioning properly and judgment is coming upon the tree, uh, in like manner, the temple is not functioning properly and judgment is coming upon it. Many times, often as well, uh, fruit in the scriptures is uh, used as a visible metaphor for an inward, invisible change of heart, right? So Galatians 5.22, you guys know this passage, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law, right? So fruit is often used as a visible metaphor for change of the inward, invisible change in the heart. It's intangible, but it's eternal, and it's real. It's real change in the heart. And many of us need to consider if we are like the fig tree, Think with me here. Do you have leaves but no fruit? Do you claim to know Christ but your life looks exactly the same as the, non, as the unbelieving world? You see, if there's no heart change, if there's no developing uh, change in your character into the image of Christ, if there is no love for God or for his people, then you are like this fig tree. You have leaves but you have no fruit. There's real heart change to being in Christ. There's real change by the gospel. Uh, Real change by the gospel will always, always have visible outgrowth in the fruit of the Spirit. You see, being fruitful as a Christian is not something that's optional. Now, it's not always black and white. You can't always say, well, I used to drink and now I don't drink. I'm not an alcoholic anymore, right? You can't say, well, I used to smoke and and now I don't smoke. It's not as simple as black and white uh, behavior modification, but rather it's an inward change of the heart, right? We begin to function and live according to God's plans and intentions. Do we do it perfectly? No. There's always progression in our own developing sanctification and growing in matureness of Christ. And so the question you need to seriously take home with you today is, are you living like Christ? This is the litmus test to understanding whether you're in Christ or not. If there's been no visible change in your character, if there's been no change of your love for God, love for the Scriptures, love for His people, then brother, sister, you really need to spend some time with the Lord. That's the lesson from the fig tree. But let's look at the ending of this passage here. Look at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. This is 24 hours later. He sees the tree withered to its roots. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Notice, this has not been a partial curse. This has not been a partial destruction. This has not been a partial judgment. As a matter of fact, the entire tree is withered away to its root. This has been a totality of destruction. So this object lesson has completed for us out with the old and in with the new. Remember, that's the point. That's the point of the first opening section of this text. It's the point of the middle section of the text and it's the the ending point here as well. That's the point. The totality of the destruction of the trees shows that the judgment upon the temple is 
complete. There is now a new way to have access to God. There is now a new way to have forgiveness with the Father. Listen, if you read this, you say, ah, Jesus hates fig trees. Listen, you've missed the point entirely. He's making a point that there's a new and better way coming. He's telling his disciples here when he says, look, the, the tree's cursed, and he says, have faith in God. What he's saying is don't lose hope because the temple is gone, but understand there's a new and better way to have forgiveness and access to God. That's what he means in verse 22 when he says, have faith in God. The point is have complete faith and have complete confidence and complete boldness in the sovereignty and ability of God. As we learn from Psalm 93, everything, everything, is under the sovereignty of our God. That's the point Jesus is making here. That's the lesson. That's the point. This is the context, right? we got to understand this to understand the next verse. The context is that God can do impossible things in ways that you and I don't think that he can. That's the point of verses 23 and 24. Look what he says. Truly I say to you, whoever says that this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, just pause for a moment. I realize I'm talking fast. Just pause. Let that settle in for a minute. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Let's let that sink in. Tell this mountain to move, and it will be thrown into the sea. Ask, and it is yours. On its face value, this seems simple. It seems like some kind of formula to get whatever the heck it is you want. But listen, that's, that would be ripping these verses out of the context in which they find themselves. You see, you can't take these verses for face value. You see, Christ is using hyperbole here. Right, so there is no way that you can tell me that in the context about cursing the fig tree, flipping the tables over in the temples, the disciples are now seeing this, hearing Christ say this, and say, Huh. They're on the Mount of Olives, right? They can see mountains in the distance. There's no way you tell me in all the context that they find themselves in in real life that they say, if I tell that mountain to move, it's going to go up 10,000 feet and then go over and then drop into the sea. It's not the context here. He's trying to make the point that God can do anything, even if we don't think he can. That God can move mountains. He can do what seems impossible to man. Believe and pray to God and he can do it. He isn't saying that you get a new BMW. He's just saying, go home, pray for a BMW, and it's going to pull into the driveway tomorrow. He's making his point about faith that God can do great things. Therefore, you seek God boldly in prayer, knowing he can do it, even if you don't know how he will do it. You see, there's this lesson of interpretation in, in, in when you approach the Scriptures that says, let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let the easier parts tell you what the harder parts are saying. Let the clear parts of Scripture uh, elucidate and illumine for you the cloudy parts. So what that means in understanding this text is that Mark isn't primarily teaching us how to pray here. You understand what I'm saying? He's, he's not primarily saying... Ask God for whatever you want, and then you just know you get it. Like, we, we, we know this is not true. Uh, number one, from experience. Number one, from experience. But we also know it from the Lord, where, like, the, the disciples ask the Lord, teach us how to pray. There, Jesus is actually teaching on prayer. 
What's he say? He says, uh, when you pray, say, your will be done. Your will be done. That, that, he's teaching you that there's this aspect of prayer that in the mind of God that there is going to be some things that he doesn't give you, even if you ask, believing that he will. Another example, later in Mark, Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, there Jesus is praying to God the Father, and here's what he says. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. You see, Jesus, out of everyone, understands that all things are possible with God in prayer. And he prays to God that this cup would be removed. And yet, there he relies on the will of God. You see, Jesus asked for something, and he didn't get it. You see, Mark isn't here teaching about just ask whatever you want. You're going to get it, bro. He's not. You see, when you and I pray to God, we pray to him in all of his characteristics and attributes at the same time. Let me show you what I mean. Like There, there are attributes and characteristics about God which we know and love deeply. right? So, for example, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness like we we understand these and that's all we want but also when we're praying to god we're praying to the god of wrath the god who brings judgment to sinners so what i let me let me let me tease this out just a little bit more and we'll, we'll close up shop so when we pray to god in the power of his love to give you what you want we are at the same time praying to god in the wisdom of his love to give you what you actually need so, right, as, as, as example, as those of us who has kids, like, you desire to give your kids what they want, and yet there are things that your children are going to ask you for that any sane parent wouldn't give them. For example, if your child asks to drive the car and they're six years old, you're not going to let them do it. Why? Because you have more wisdom than they are. Like, they're idiots if they want to do that, right? Like, like, in the same way... When we pray to God, it's not this magic eight ball. We just get whatever we want. But rather we pray and trust in his wisdom to give us what we need. So this is the point Mark's making from this whole passage. Let me sum it up. Jesus is saying that there is an invitation out to you and I today, to the disciples then, but to us as the church today, to ask God to do the impossible Our faith needs not be in our own strength of faith. Our our faith needs to be in God. For example, do you believe that the Lord will work his power at this church? Do you believe that the Lord will continue to work inside of you to change you into the image of Christ? You're like, ah, like, I'm just, I'm just an angry guy. Like, I can't change this. Listen, trust the Lord to change you. Like, you can't change yourself. That's why you need God to do it for you. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying he will. He will. And therefore, we should have boldness and confidence to actually believe it. You see, the fig tree lessons on the fruit and on the faith here point to the fact that the old way is done and the new way has begun. No longer do we need to receive forgiveness in some external ritual. No longer do we need to make ourselves clean. But we receive forgiveness in the person of Christ, and our lives are changed because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. 
Lord, we thank you for this passage of Mark here. Lord, that in driving out the temple, uh, the temple money changes and the scribes and the Pharisees, Father, Lord, you were replacing the temple with yourself. You are the one who tabernacled amongst us. And Lord, because this is true, we know that you're here, even today, dwelling in the midst of your people, dwelling inside the hearts of your chosen people. And we believe this, Father. And we ask that you would change us from the inside out. We ask that if there's an area, the fruit of the Spirit, that we struggle with the most, Father, we just humbly acknowledge that before you. We ask that you change us from the inside out. Listen, Father, we, we pray in confidence. We pray in boldness that you would do it. Father, for those outside of Christ this morning, Lord, we know that you alone open the eyes of blinded people. And so we ask that you do that this morning. Take up residence in the hearts of the unbelievers. Pray you help us today in Christ's name. Amen.